Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. You know, we finished a major section in the book of Hebrews, the doctrinal section. And I mentioned this uh, last week that we finished a major section. And so as such, we're moving sort of into a, a new portion of the book. And specifically, that portion of the book is about application. And so we'll start this morning in more of an applicational section. That's why you'll notice the very first word that we're going to look at is the word therefore. So he's saying, in light of all these things we've been building on, now here's what we're going to go in and do with that information. So the theme that we're going to look at this morning, right out of the gate, if you look at the very first verse, which is verse 19, he uses that word confidence. And we'll get there in just a moment talking about that word confidence in the context of the text. But that word confidence is really the glue of not just today's passage, but it's really the glue of the entire book of Hebrews, that we have confidence to be near a holy God. I don't know about you, and I think I've said that last week too. Yeah, I do know about you. You're not holy. I'm not either. And so we are not well-behaved people. We're not perfect people. And yet we say that we are close to in an intimate relationship with a holy God. That can't happen unless God has done something revolutionary to draw us near, because naturally speaking, we can't be near God. But he's done something amazing to draw us near. Look at the very, I want you to look just at the very first part, first part of verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. The holy places is a way of the author of Hebrews talking about the presence of God. We have confidence, he says, to enter the presence of God. I did a Google image search of the word confidence. Can you go and throw the, the results for that up there? Look at, does, what do you see as the common theme of the Google search, image search of the word confidence? It has a lot to do with yourself, right? Every time you look at the word confidence on that screen, it has something to do with flexing your muscles or your chest poked out or your hands on your hips like you're some sort of Superman figure or flexing or saying, yes, I can do this. The one at the bottom is just really corny. Come on, chopping the apostrophe T off of can't. I mean, that's kind of just cheesy to me. But this mentality of confidence is almost always combined with self. It's almost always combined with ourselves. But I want you to understand something. That is the exact opposite of the biblical view of our confidence as believers to approach a holy God. You see, left to self, we can't, no, we can't. We can't approach a holy God. Left to ourselves, we are full of sin. We are unworthy to approach him. We are distant from him. The Bible says that we are separated from him. And for anybody that wants to go to heaven when they they die, that word separated is not a good word. We're separated from a holy God. And that's not good news. That's bad news. But the word gospel means good news. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that we have not shame and guilt, but because of the work of Jesus, we have confidence. Keep going in verse 19. He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the presence of God, listen, by the blood of Jesus, specifically by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We're talking about ripping in half this access point, this barrier to bring access. And since we have a great high priest, or a great priest over the house of God, I want to pause right there. He's going to then go into some applicational instructions. We've looked at some images in the past of a temple and the tabernacle and how there was this room that represented the dwelling place of God, this holy of holies. And yet there was this big, thick curtain, this veil that separated God from the rest of the places, right? That people and God were separated because of people's sin. The curtain that was in that tabernacle, the curtain that was in that temple, and these folks, when, when the author of Hebrews says, <clears throat> by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, they would know that that curtain isn't like your shower curtain. 
It's a big, gigantic barrier between a holy God and sinful people like you and me, separating the unholy from the holy. Now, that curtain I mentioned, it wasn't like your shower curtain. Shower curtains are like the most flimsy things. You ever, you ever have a shower curtain where you turn on the shower and it like is so lightweight that it like blows up into you and you're like, get away from me. I'm trying to take a shower here. We've had one of those before and it's like, I will spend actual money to weigh this thing down, right? Because that's when we think about curtains, we think of light things. Maybe your, your curtains over your, your windows, they're, they're light things, easy to open and close. In fact, if they're heavy, they're kind of a nuisance. The barrier that we're talking about here between holy God and sinful man wasn't like a shower curtain. It, first of all, it was roughly 60 feet tall. <laughs> that's, that's large, okay? For reference, that's about 10 refrigerators tall or an entire bowling lane tall. That's, that's a high curtain. That's not like a shower curtain. That's a high curtain. It also was four inches thick, according to Jewish tradition. That's about the width of your hand, that part of your hand right there without the thumb, about that thick fabric, that thick. It's like a phone book, right? I mean, it's really a thick, thick curtain. And so this curtain, the only way it was pulled back was that the high priest, one man, one Jewish man, could go into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, one day a year. He was able to bypass the barrier, do all these ritual cleansings to go in, because other than that, he was unauthorized. And, and everybody else was also unauthorized to go in. In fact, that word in verse 19, confidence, can also be translated, have authorization. To have authorization, to be VIP access, you can go in. When I was um, in college, my job was I worked for ESPN. And everybody says, whoa, that's cool. It was a lot more grungy than you think. Uh, but I worked for ESPN and also did some independent stuff for like Fox Sports and ABC and stuff. Um, so I've done lots of football games, at, especially Bryant-Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa. I've done a lot in Starkville. I did IndyCar circuits and gymnastics. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So doing that job, you were given a credential. And maybe you go to a, a concert and have backstage pass or something like that. It all comes with a credential, right? You have to have showed them something that says, I'm authorized to have access. I could not go on the field and do my job at a football game for ESPN unless I had that credential that had my name on it, that had a certain access granted written on that thing. In Jewish tradition, they were well acquainted with the fact that they had a barrier between holy God and sinful man. They did not have a credential that said you can approach a holy God. And so what I want you to understand is, in Matthew 27, when Jesus is crucified, this may be a passage that's always been confusing to you. In Matthew 27, when Jesus is crucified, the barrier between God and man was torn as Jesus gave up his spirit. In Matthew 27, 50 and 51, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple, listen, was torn in two. Listen to this last little disclaimer. From top to bottom. That means no human being walked in there and took a salami sword to the bottom of that thing. It means that God, from top to bottom, all 60 feet from the top to the bottom, he ripped that thing in half, symbolically showing people that the barrier between a holy God and sinful man is gone. That's the good news of the gospel, that we who are far off can be brought near. A new and living way, as the author of Hebrews has said, confidence, authorization, Speaking of uh, been brought near, Ephesians 2.13 says that. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's all of us, y'all. Well, you were once far off, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice it doesn't say brought near by your work, brought near by your effort, brought near by your upbringing. No, no, no. By the blood of Christ. With that curtain torn comes access, and with access comes a calling. And so I've called this message a torn curtain call because we are called to do and called to be and called to live in a certain light because that temple curtain is gone. We have access to God. And so why don't you, why don't you see this morning, we're going to have three verbs that we're going to look at in just a moment. Let's read the rest of our passage. In fact, I'm going to start at the beginning again, and then I'm going to look at three isolated verbs, and those will be the three main takeaways this morning. Good? Let's look at our passage. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. A torn curtain call. Three verbs that you saw there, they all began with lettuce. And that's why the slide that I'm going to show you guys as I show you the first one has lettuce on it. Like lettuce, like it, like the emoji, right? You'll see. Go to the first one up there, Greg. The first thing is to let us draw near. To let us draw near. Isn't that great? Look how vibrant and green that is. I know, it really just perks you up. Now I'm seeing all of the green that you guys are wearing. Those of you that are wearing green, don't look around. Don't make them feel weird. To let us draw near. And I say let us, let us, because we're going to see the let us in our passage this morning. The three verbs all begin with let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. The first one is to let us draw near. Notice it's built on that instruction to draw near to God is built on what we just talked about, confidence. The fact that we've been made clean, the fact that Jesus has gone and torn in half the barrier, what are we supposed to do about that? Get in there. Get in there. Draw near to him. Draw close to him. I want you to let's think about something. If you were given a text with an instruction or a warning or some sort of a command, you can read behind that and see that there's a need for it. Like, for example, forget the text thing. Some of you guys were, were raised by parents, and most of you. If they came up to you and said, clean up your room, read behind that statement, what does that mean is the problem? You have a dirty room. So what I want you to see is this instruction is there for a reason. And as the instruction exists, we can look behind the instruction and see that the opposite is what's happening. So what's happening? There is a tendency to, in shame, stay away from God, to be distant from him, to feel so burdened about the weight of sin that Jesus has paid for, to be far away from him. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 don't in shame go away from God. Get in there. Draw near, he's saying. So it says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, instead of a guilty heart, a true heart, clean heart, in full assurance, not doubt, but assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, not dirty, but clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
he's speaking to a people group, again, Jewish Christians, that knew all too well the burden of exhaustive ritual cleansing, where they did these washing after washings after washings after washings to approach the temple, to approach a worshipful environment. And what he's saying in light of that is, you've been permanently made clean. No more ritual cleansings. God has made you clean. That's why he says, with a true heart. It's a clean heart. No longer guilty. Again, we already saw this in chapter 9, verse 14. Look back at chapter 9, verse 14, just real quick. Chapter 9, verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, here it is, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then in chapter 10, verse 14, For by a single offering he has Perfected, that means made clean for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, written to first century Jewish Christians with long-standing traditions, they would find this a tough idea to grasp. That's why he's telling it to them. Draw near, draw near. They're reminded of the reminder of sin, the sacrificial system. We looked at that at length last week, so I'm not going to go there. But all that to say, there is a deep-seated, in this people group, a deep-seated, annually reinforced guilt problem. In shame, they would either stay away or they would feel like they had to bring something to the table, bring some offering, bring some sacrifice to gain access, gain welcome, gain an approach to God. In shame, stay away or feel like they had to bring something to the table to feel worth being able to come and worship. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been out of church for a long time because you in shame just feel like you can't be near him. Or that you haven't done enough yet. You haven't cleaned your act up enough yet to be able to worship God. And well, church is for, for the church people. I'm just not one of them. I'm here for graduation. They'll recognize my family, but this isn't really my scene. Don't you see that this is a relevant message for you? There's no shame for those that are covered in the blood of Jesus. There's no guilt. And there certainly isn't anything that you can bring to the throne of grace that can accomplish any more than what Jesus has already accomplished. I think that maybe you need to hear today what Romans 8, 1 says when it says that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And, and to continue then, and again, this audience, but also us, to continue then to bear <clears throat> shame or guilt. Here's what that does. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, so again, I'm not going to dwell here. But to continue to bear that, it places limitation on the cross. It, it limits the power of what Jesus said is finished. You say, no, no, not really. It cheapens the work of Jesus. It builds a barrier where Jesus has torn one in half. But I think that there are also some of us that aren't so much unfamiliar with the saving work of Jesus that we are overly familiar. Let me explain what I mean by that. We can tend to be desensitized to just how wonderful this is. We can tend to be desensitized because it's always been for that way for us. Maybe you were taught that statement from birth. What did Jesus do? Well, he came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. Why? I don't know. That's just what we say. And you've become so rehearsed at that that you forget to understand just what an amazing realization it is that we have been brought near to a holy God. And you're wondering, is he really playing with his phone during church? I can right now <clears throat> make a FaceTime call to my sister in the Middle East right now, and we don't even think anything of it. Let's see if she answers. She lives in the Middle East, right? Hey, Janae, what's up, homie? You would have bad service right now. Well, stop talking to me like that. I'll talk to you later. Bye. <clears throat> 
Here's my point. I just instantaneously spoke to someone on the other side of the world. Did you think that that was amazing when I did it? Maybe, maybe not. She's calling me back. I don't want to talk to you again. (laughs) Hey, we're done here. I already did my thing. You can go now, okay? All right, see ya. You are the only generation in the history of human civilization that can do what I just did. You are the only generation in the history of human civilization that can do what I just did. Listen, you may not be amazed by that naturally. Now, I've, I've talked about it now, and so you're like, actually, that is pretty cool when you think about it. You may not have immediately recoiled from that because we don't. Because we so, become so familiar, it's like, it's just the mundane. It's just what always happens. We can easily do that. We can shoot a rocket into space. Do you understand that some people didn't even have a concept for what space is? And we take it for granted because it's so familiar and so mundane is that we hear it all the time, and so we just don't even think about it. You may not be amazed that you have 24-7 access to the holy God of the universe, but that doesn't make it any less amazing. It just means that you don't care about it anymore. You've ceased to be amazed. You've lost a sense of wonder. I think one sad reason that our zeal for the Lord has been extinguished is because we have lost that sense of wonder. Guys, the fact that what this says, that that barrier is torn in two, that should inspire awe from us. We should want to take advantage of every opportunity to go to him. If you were granted access to God in prayer once a year, what would your schedule look like on that day? You'd cancel every appointment. You'd devote yourself to it. You know why? Because you understand the cost, the gravitas, and the beauty of what it means to have access to a holy God. If you were given VIP access to your favorite musician's concert or your favorite team's locker room, you'd break every appointment to have a priceless encounter, and their clout is nothing in comparison to God's glory. We should be amazed, and for goodness sake, we should draw near to him. Let us draw near. The second thing is to, he says, let us hold fast the confession. To let us hold fast the confession. The second part of this calling of a torn curtain, to let us hold fast that confession, that reality of that confidence and that torn curtain, that way, living way that has been made. This is the third time in the book of Hebrews that the author has used the verb hold fast. It means to persevere. It means to hang in there. It means to fight the good fight. It means to endure. And here he says, once again, hold fast in verse 23. Let us hold fast. There's the let us again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For, here's the reason why we don't waver. Here's the reason why we can hold fast. For, he who promised is faithful. Read behind the text. Why give them that instruction? Why the command to hold fast? Because there is a tendency to let go. There is a tendency to walk away. There is a tendency to waver. He uses the word unwavering. There is a tendency to waver, to forget the foundation that first brought you near, to reduce what we're doing to moralism and ritualism and religion instead of the fact that God has purchased you by an amazing sacrificial relationship work. Don't strip it from what it actually is. That's the confession. Our confession is simply put, the foundation of our faith. It's what we end our baptisms with. 
I believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and Savior. What's the confession? What do we hold fast to? That. That he is the Christ. That he's the Son of the living God. That he is our Lord and Savior. When we say Lord, it means that he's our master. But also it means that he reigns. He's the King of kings. When we say that he's our Savior, it means that he saved you. But it also means he's going to return to rescue you from this world. Redeem you. What a confession, y'all. What a confession of a statement. That is a confession of hope. That's why in this verse he talks about hope, because that is a confession founded on, built on an idea of hope. We see this in verse 23. Hold fast the confession of our hope. Now, when we say the word hope, we can say that in a couple of different ways. We can see that as an uncertain desire versus a certain future. An uncertain desire versus a certain future. I'll tell you what I mean. You may say, some of you guys that are just about to graduate from high school, maybe finishing up some college classes, or maybe you're doing some nursing stuff. You say, man, I hope I pass the test. I hope I pass that test. What kind of hope is that? That is hope of an uncertain desire. It's like, I hope this happens, but we're going to wait and see, right? You may say, I hope I get a promotion. I hope my kids' attitudes are good tomorrow. Maybe that's a high hope, right? But that word, hope, in that context, oh, I have high hopes for this, right? Had high hopes for this. What does that mean? It is an uncertain desire. Sure hope it happens. We'll see. But there's another way to see the word hope. Not an uncertain desire, but a certain future. I'll give you an example. You know what the hope is of a rainy day? That the sun's going to come out. It's not going to rain forever. There's a hope that all rain will eventually subside. It may be a torrential downpour outside, and you think, I hope this rain stops. It's going to, man. It's a certain future. Rain will stop falling from the sky. There is hope that the sun will rise tomorrow. You know why we know that? Because it always does. You may think, well, technically, the world could end. Okay, anyway. My point is, there's a difference between an uncertain desire and the hope of a certain future. Which do you think that the author of Hebrews means? A certain future, man. A certain future. This isn't something that's up in the air. Will he, won't he? No, no, no. This is a certain future. Hope is an Hope in an endlessly faithful God that he will continue to be faithful. That's a sure thing. But he also calls it an unwavering hope. Please hear me say this. Our hope is not unwavering because you live an unwavering life. Your hope is not unwavering because you live an unwavering life. You don't. It is based not on your strength or your ability to hold fast, but on his this is not on the screen, but John 6, 39 and 40 really captures this well. This is the will of the Father that I will lose. Jesus said, I will lose nothing of all that he's given me. Anybody that God has given to the Son to save, he ain't going to lose you. It goes on and says that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. How can we not waver? Because he's promised. Because he who promised is faithful. Guys, our hope isn't built on personal merit. It isn't built on how you've behaved this week, whether or not you've succumbed to worry or lust or impatience or gluttony or laziness. It isn't built on your upbringing. Your hope isn't built on your track record. It isn't built on your prayer life. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is built not on your strength to hold fast to him, but on his faithfulness in holding fast to you. Your hope isn't unwavering because you are unwavering. It's unwavering because he is unwavering. I'll put it this way. On your very worst day, you are no less loved and accepted by God. On your worst day. 
Amen. Thank God for that. That's our confession. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and Savior, today and forevermore. Praise God. There's a third verb. A third verb. One more, let us. He says, let us stir up one another. To let us stir up one another. <clears throat> to stir up one another. <clears throat> you know, the first one, drawing near to God, that's vertical, right? Drawing near to God. The second one, holding fast to confession, that's internal, right? But the third one, to stir up one another, is external and it's horizontal, meaning that it's something that's done outside of us, but it's also not something so much vertical as it is amongst one another, our brothers and sisters that are around us. He goes on in verses 24 and 25 and says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is where things get a little bit interesting because next week we're going to look at this in the next part of Hebrews. There's going to be a a very stern warning of drifting away. We looked at this back in chapter 2 of Hebrews. There's a lot of warnings in Hebrews, and so part of the application is don't drift. Don't wander off. Don't leave. And so this instruction is built on what's about to happen next, and he's saying you need one another. The warning is, remember the context, Jewish Christians in the first century Roman Empire, they were on a spiritual island. And so he's telling them, you need each other. I mean, read behind the text then. What does that mean? There is a temptation to drift away from the one another aspects of your relationship with Jesus. There's an implication and a warning. And that is that people that, please don't miss this, people that walk away from the church will also walk away from the faith. That's a heavy word. I'm not saying they're going to lose their salvation. I'm saying they never had it. Those that walk away prove that they were never his. That's not me. We've seen this over and over again in the book of Hebrews. That's why 1 John 2 says that they walked away from us. They went out from us because they were never really of us. God will secure and preserve and cause to persevere anybody that truly belongs to him. But there's a warning built into this passage and he's saying, draw near to one another. Also, to have fellowship with one another. Don't neglect to meet together. Why? Because those that walk away from the church will also one day walk away from the faith. Again, the author is about to devote a lot of time to that warning. And you're thinking, if you're thinking, I want to hear more about that. Because that sounds kind of interesting. Come next week and we'll talk about it. I'm not, I'm not shying away from that. But the principle is this, in the here and now in this moment. That is that there is no such thing as an isolated Christian. There is no such thing as an isolated Christian. Someone that becomes isolated quickly proves that they're not a Christian. They will drift, they will leave, and they will be gone. And no one in this room is above it either. We talked about this in Hebrews 2. That sermon is online, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can go check that out. I've devoted a lot of time and energy into that one too. You need other believers. There's no such thing as a Christian on, in isolation, living on an island. This is why going to be with the church is so vital. And hear this. It's also why online church is an oxymoron. That is a completely contradictory idea. We can worship through an online medium. We can listen to sermons and we can sing through an online medium. But the church requires a gathering. That's what church is. Church is not this building. Church is this people. We are gathered together. We together. Not, one individual is not the church. We are the church. 
It requires that we gather together. The centerpiece of this gathering isn't hearing a sermon or singing songs or praying and giving. The centerpiece of this gathering is doing all those things, sermon, singing, praying, giving, alongside one another, alongside the church. You need a community of believers stirring you up. Why do you need it? Because what the author of Hebrews is about to say, if you don't have it, you will drift. And some of you guys, man, the writing's on the wall. Like, you, you, you know this. You, you have sons and daughters or brothers or sisters or peers or people that you graduated high school with, and you're like, man, our youth group used to be thriving, and they're not even in church anymore, and I'm not even sure if they're Christians. Me neither. You know why? Because those that drift from the gathering, they're gone. Again, we'll see this at length next week. So what does it look like to be stirring one another up to love and good works? not neglecting meeting together. It means a few things. What does it look like to be stirred up? It means that you have people in your life that are encouraging your spirit. It means that you have people in your life that are loving you. And when I say loving you, I don't mean patting you on your bottom. Sometimes love means telling you that you need to be called out for a way that you're living that ain't right. Isn't that what you do to your kids? Love doesn't always mean that you just pander to every one of their wants and needs, or all their wants, I guess. Sometimes love means saying no. Sometimes love means saying you need discipline. Sometimes love means saying you need to hear a harsh truth, even if it's not said in a harsh way. It means that you need people that are asking about your time in God's word, that are restoring you when you haven't been in God's word, people that are bearing your burdens with you, people that are praying with you. I want you to notice something. All the things that I just said, they can't happen if you're not with other believers. Those things can't happen. It requires other people in your life. And you need to do, be, be doing the same thing for other people, other Christians. There are 59 one another statements in the New Testament. 59. 59 instructions to blank one another in the New Testament, to love one another, encourage one another, pray with one another, bear one another's burdens, lift one another up, whatever it may be, meet one another's needs. 59 of those things. How are we going to live the Christian life if we do it in isolation? We won't do it obediently. Not with all those things. And let me just say this. It's hard to do that when you're here at 10 a.m. or 10.05 and hitting the exit as soon as we finish the closing prayer. How are you going to bear with one another? How are you going to encourage one another? How are you going to be encouraged by the people sitting around you? If you're in one indoor and then boom, you're gone as soon as the closing prayer hits. I encourage you to arrive early to stay late, to introduce yourself to people that you don't know. Now with that comes a little bit of awkwardness, right? Because our church is just exploding right now and it's growing like crazy. And um, someone told me not too long ago that um, they introduced themselves to somebody that they didn't recognize and the guy was like, I've been going to church here for 40 years, brother. <laughs> we have people that came back from being isolated due to COVID they came back, and they didn't even recognize their home church around them. People introducing themselves to them, and then, you know, and that comes awkward, I understand that, but I want you to just hear me say this. Can we all just make an agreement that there is zero shame in someone going out of their way to introduce themselves to you? Even if you've been going to the same church for months or years, it's not too late. We're all just, we're, let's just get on the same page. Even if you've seen them. You know, I, I, I know that guy. He was in my Sunday school 20 years ago, and I, I don't even remember his name. Just go talk to him. I know her. We served in the nursery one time together. I don't even remember her name. 
just go talk to her. Like, don't let the, the barriers of our society become the barriers of the church. Get over it. You don't like feeling awkward? I don't care. Get over it. I feel awkward every time I meet somebody just like you do. You know what I do? Just get over it. And I'm not perfect at that. And I try really hard to remember some names, but I'm not great at that either sometimes. And so if I come up to you and say eight times, what's your name? Don't scoff at me and be like, you loser, get out of my face. Some of you guys are capable of things like that, and I'm just not happy about it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) My point is, it should never be a social faux pas in the church to go and love one another. It just shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And so can we make a conscious agreement with one another that we're going to give availability to one another to just talk and encourage and love and say you're glad that you're here and say, I know that you've been here a long time, but I don't know you. Can we be a church that does the one another's? But to do that, we just can't be here at 10.05 and then hit the exits right away. In fact, I'd say it in a different way. Don't just face one direction. We're all facing this direction, right? It's hard to do the 59 and one another's when we're all facing the same direction. Do the things in the local gathering that cause you to face one another. Plug into a Sunday school class. Think, well, I've been here for two years and I still ain't done that. It's, it's awkward. I mean, they're going to think, what are they going to think? It doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter. Be obedient. Find community. Do the one another's. Go find a Sunday school class. Change Sunday school classes. If it's time for you to move up and you're like, oh, I love my teacher, get over it. The church is larger than one individual. It's larger than you. Let us do the one another's with one another. Check out men's and women's ministry. You think, well, small groups aren't really my thing. Is loving people your thing? It's a great way to be loved. It's a great way to love others. If you have a child that's youth age and you don't, you don't if you give them an option in their discipleship, would you have taken the option of growing in godliness when you were 14? Or would you have rather played PlayStation? Don't be a fool, man. Force the issue of your children's discipleship. If you were given the option to pay your taxes, would you do it? Sometimes we got to do things we don't want to do, church. Help the people in your home to see that there is something larger than you, larger than them, that they have needs that they don't even realize they have. I think this is the heart of what the author of Hebrews is saying. Have your children in Awana. It's an awesome program, but it's fueled by gospel love. Fellowship around the table. Wednesday nights are so wonderful. I think that it's fellowship at its absolute best because this is a time that we are loving one another and bearing with one another and having a meal with one another and just visiting and getting to know your lives. You can't do that when you're all facing this direction. Serve with one another. Find a place to serve and plug in and you get to know people in a special capacity when you serve with one another. Ask yourself the question, how often am I facing these people that I call my church family? How often are we sitting around and facing one another instead of just facing the same direction? Is this yet my church family? What am I waiting for? You need this, man. Would this church be healthy? Would this church even be alive if we were all at your level of commitment? And again, I like what Sam said earlier. This isn't about padding our numbers. This is about me shepherding your soul. And if that's hard to hear, I mean, I'm not going to apologize for that because you need to hear that, man. Church is not just for the super spiritual and on-fire Christians. It's for actual Christians. And that's the author's warning is that if you are an actual Christian, you need 
the church. You need the church, and the church needs you. To say, I can do this alone, I don't really need organized religion, that statement is to defy the very command of the one that you claim is Lord. It's not me, man. It's God's instruction. You need the local church. Stir up one another to love and good works. Be an encourager, a builder up. Hold fast to confession. His faithfulness, not your merit, not your strength, not your ability to hold on to him, but his ability to hold on to you. You call him Savior and Lord. Have you really made him that? Is he still that? And finally, draw near. I want to have a diagram I want to show you before we head out today. Go and throw that last diagram up there. A buddy of mine who pastors here in the county showed me this. Um, I wanted to show it to you because I think it's a really beautiful picture. Um, you'll see it says conversion. I know that's a grainy background and it's not a perfect image, but I'll, I'll explain it as we go. So that the line on the left is sort of just a linear time scale. And then when those lines start to diverge from one another, I think that's the word, right? I don't think, think I understand the word diverge. But that means that's the conversion moments. And someone gives their life to Jesus. And after that, they start to learn about God and learn about their sin and learn about their problem, learn about how wonderful and amazing and perfect and holy that God is. Here's the thing though. We talked about this not long ago. The more you learn about God, the more you realize you have no business being near him. The more you learn yourself, the more you realize I have no business being around a holy God. And so at the start of your relationship with Jesus, you see that the cross brings you together, right? But sometimes we call it like a bridge, and the cross is the bridge that brings us hostile parties reconciled to God. But here's the thing that I want you to understand as we wrap up today. When I say to draw near, The longer you live, and if you're growing in godliness, and if you're growing to see God as more and more and more and more amazing and holy and wonderful, if you do, then you will see the more and more and more, or the less, I should say, that you belong anywhere near him because you know your sin and you know his perfection. But here's what that does, and this diagram depicts this well is that it causes the cross to grow larger and larger and larger and larger. You want to love the work of Jesus, understand how wonderful God is, and understand how overwhelming your sin is. And it just magnifies and magnifies and magnifies. Today, you may have become bored because you've lost the wonder. My encouragement to you is to understand that a command, the instruction to draw near to God is something that would have absolutely rocked the world of Jewish people for thousands of years. But for you, it's just Sunday. Can we reevaluate the wonder of the cross? And maybe you don't have confidence today or in eternity because you've never truly laid down your sin before Jesus and made an earnest plea for his saving grace. Can I just tell you something? The barrier that you feel between you and God is it's simply your sin. But that barrier has been torn asunder by the work of Jesus. And the only thing stopping you from surrendering your life to Jesus and having assurance and a clean and pure conscience is yourself. Today, lay it down. Give it to him and draw near not with shame and guilt, but perfect, wonderful confidence. Today, you can be authorized.